Are you trying to squeeze the starting solid food stuff into your already busy schedule? Well, I have an all-in-one done-for-you solution that's going to take the guesswork out of feeding your baby. My online program is called Baby Led Weaning with Katie Ferraro. It contains all of my baby led weaning training videos, the original 100 First Foods content library, plus a 100-day meal plan with recipes like the exact sequence of which foods to feed in which order. So if you want to stop trying to piece all this feeding stuff together on your own, I would be honored if you would join me inside of the program. You can get signed up at babyledweaning.co slash program. Checking in about food allergies and introducing allergenic foods. And have you done peanut with your baby yet? Well, intact nuts and thick globs of nut butters like peanut butter are choking hazards for babies, but we want to get that peanut protein into your baby early and often in order to help lower the risk of peanut allergy down the road. My absolute favorite way to introduce peanuts for babies is using the Puffworks Baby Peanut Puffs. So When you hear puffs, like you're probably like, oh, those starchy little puff things. Like, no, no, no. Not the little ones that earlier eaters can't pick up. Those kind of crappy puffs from the store that have added sugar and refined grains and lots of salt. Uh uh. The Puffworks baby peanut puffs have no added sugar. They have just a smidge of sodium for preservatives, and they are the perfect size for baby led weaning. They're about the size of your adult pinky finger. So, you can, baby can pick them up, self-feed them, but they're so soft that they dissolve in your baby's mouth so you can introduce these peanut puffs even before your baby has teeth. Puffworks also makes a baby almond puff for the safe introduction of a separate allergenic food category. That's tree nuts. And now, finally, Puffworks put out a combo case. So it's half baby peanut and half baby almond. So if you want to grab one case, then you can knock out two new allergenic foods. We do these on different days, though. These are just the no-stress, low-mess way to get peanut and tree nut out of the way. So you can get 15% off everything at puffworks.com when you use the affiliate discount code BLWPOD. That's a new code. It's BLWPOD. Use that sucker at checkout at puffworks.com and get peanut and tree nut safely out of the way. We know this. If you think you can control what goes in a child's body, what comes out of their body, you have got to come to terms with that not being true. Like in no universe, you cannot. You also can't control how somebody feels. Hey there, I'm Katie Ferraro, registered dietitian, college nutrition professor, and mom of seven specializing in baby led weaning. Here on the Baby Led Weaning Made Easy podcast, I help you strip out all of the noise and nonsense about feeding, leaving you with the confidence and knowledge you need to give your baby a safe start to solid foods using baby led weaning. All right, you've got the baby in the high chair, you're offering a new food and they start freaking out and they're not enjoying the experience and your stress level goes up. And then how do you respond when your baby is upset at mealtimes? Well, my guest today is Dr. Aliza Pressman. And I'm not saying she has all the answers, but oh my gosh, does she have some really actionable tips for us about how to respond to baby behavior at mealtimes. So Dr. Aliza Pressman, many of you may be familiar with her because she is a host of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. It's called Raising Good Humans. It's consistently a top-rated parenting podcast. And I've learned so much from her podcast about not only my own children, but then also working with the babies that I work with in my business and feeding practice as well. So Dr. Pressman is a mom of two children, Penelope and Vivian. She has over 15 years of experience working with families. She has a PhD in human developmental psychology from Columbia University. She's certified in parent management. She's a co-founding director and the director of the clinical programming for the Mount Sinai Parenting Center. 
She's an assistant clinical professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Even though she's based in Los Angeles and I had like the most enjoyable conversation with her, she's here to talk about calming an upset baby at mealtimes. So with no further ado, here is Dr. Aliza Pressman. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, I am sorry, fangirling right now. I'm a huge fan of your podcast. I am so excited, like have been since we set up this interview. Before we dive into talking about kind of calming your upset baby at mealtimes, could you tell us a little bit about your background and then the path that you took to becoming the parenting expert that we all know and love you as today? <laughs> Thank you. I get so uncomfortable with parenting expert, but I know that is technically what I am. <laughs> I hate being an influencer, Aliza, but I technically am. <laughs> so, right. I just have to adapt to the, this world. So I am a developmental psychologist. I was planning on doing clinical psychology. And I decided this very like mid-year that I was really interested in children and just how they work and what I could do to help if there were problems, basically. And um, my mom is an educator and I think it was probably at some point inevitable. And my family's kind of wacky. So psychology seemed interesting. (laughs) And it was the middle of the year. So I went to look up like, how to apply. And I couldn't apply maybe until fall and I wanted to do something. And so I took four classes per this professor at NYU, because I lived nearby, who said, why don't you take the fundamentals, like the intro courses, just so you have spent some time and then apply here in the fall. So I took abnormal psychology, which is basically clinical. And I took developmental, which is what I became. And I took counseling and social psychology. And when I took them, it was like a little bit like dating. And I just fell in love with developmental psychology. I just was like, what? There's like all these reasons that we came to be who we are and so many beautiful ways that development unfolds that are similar in everybody. And then some that are so different. And my mind was so blown with all the theories and all of the research. And it's from one intro course. It was just such a fit. (laughs) So I went to Columbia and I was totally like it just re-inspired me and reinvigorated me. And then I ended up working in a lab there and I did the PhD program in developmental psych, but I also had this strange master's in adolescence and risk resilience and prevention. It's just that as I was learning about adolescence, I also realized I wanted to do babies, toddlers, and younger children for my PhD program because every year that I like exploring earlier in development, it felt like there was more possibility for prevention and support. Sometime after graduate school, no, it was during graduate school. At some point when I was pregnant and one of the postdocs that I was friends with was pregnant at the same time. And we were like, what do people do when they don't have a friend who's a researcher to call, to ask these questions to? And so we started these mom groups and then they became parent groups for babies. And then they would just grow with us. Some of mine are, you know, have high schoolers now and they have not let go of our group. So I, I found a way to interact with parents directly and I really loved it. And that's, I still have a private practice, but then I also really felt like I was right after graduate school. And I think during my, probably while I was writing my dissertation, I went to teach behavior and development at Mount Sinai I couldn't understand. Like, I was just like, okay, what do you want me to teach? And I just didn't understand that there was no standardized American Academy of Pediatrics program or curriculum for behavior and development. 
And I just didn't believe it. Like I was like, this is so ridiculous. How's that You should see nutrition. It's the exact same thing. There is absolutely a standardized curriculum. And like 90% of physicians have never had a nutrition class in this country. Totally. And it's so bonkers because when you, the only access you have as a parent typically is with your pediatrician. You depend on them so much and they're so wonderful, but it's just not part of the training. And so I started to think about that with the physicians that were in charge of the program. And we started a a parenting center where we could integrate parenting and child development into the water in healthcare systems. So that was really like now most of my work, I stopped teaching child development courses at like I was teaching at Columbia and infant development and child development and adolescent development. And that's much more traditional for folks in my field. And I completely only do teaching in hospitals with physicians and social workers and you know, family medicine and any healthcare provider really that interacts with families, we try to find ways to make sure that there's support for behavior and development because of course, everybody gets asked that. I'm sure that this happens all the time for you. Aliza, I love your podcast, but also your email newsletter is amazing. And I learn something new from you each week. So I appreciate that you're teaching on lots of different avenues. I know sometimes as someone who sends out a lot of emails to a lot of people, like, is anyone actually reading this? I I'm am. So happy to hear that. I wonder the same thing. I'm like, I know. This is helpful. I know. I'm like, my open rates sometimes are in the toilet, yet some people write back and like, Katie, thank you so much for that recipe. I'm like, thank you. But you recently did a summary of practical tips for discipline at all ages. And I love that you included the part about babies with the reminder for us that babies are too young to calm themselves. And so when babies get upset at mealtimes, and by babies for the purpose of our audience, I mean an infant age six to 12 months when they're making that transition to solid foods. When they get upset at mealtimes, does it mean they don't like food or does it mean that they don't like learning how to eat? What's going on developmentally? Thank you for appreciating that I said discipline for babies um, <laughs> because I think you know this, but I'll say it for everyone. Discipline just is the you know Latin root to teach and we just want to or comes from that. And if you think about it as teaching, you're not going to start later. You start out of the gate. And also it you know, whatever you practice in your own parenting behavior and strategies gets stronger and stronger. And so of course, the minute you're talking to your babies, you want to start using the language that will support discipline throughout their life and that positive connection. So in this case, when, you know, babies can't self-regulate, I mean, I'm not going to get too technical about this because it's probably too much, but there are some schools of thought that they can self-regulate in very technical senses. Like for example, if you shine a light on a baby in the bassinet, when they're a newborn, they'll still like close their eyes. And like that is some, in some ways, self-regulation because you're figuring out what you need to get that light out of your eyes. But in general, we really co-regulate as people and plenty of scientists feel like co-regulation is really the more important way of thinking about it. And it's like, if you're passing a ball back and forth with you and the baby, which you wouldn't be at six months necessarily particularly easily, but if you can imagine this ball back and forth and the ball is, you know, if you throw it gently or like roll it gently, then you'll probably get a gentle roll back. And if you, you know, throw it hard, then that's what you're getting. And you really want emotions to be they are contagious in many ways. And so if you can regulate yourself as a parent, you are much, much more likely to support your baby in their own regulation. They borrow your calm, so to speak. So because of that, if they're having trouble at the table or they're crying and hard to soothe, they're not going to learn that they 
should stop doing that because you tell them to stop or because you ignore them because they don't have capacity to support themselves yet. They're just little babies. Their prefrontal cortex exists, but it's quite undeveloped. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. If you've been thinking about giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's a convenient, flexible, affordable, and entirely online experience. All you do is just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can also switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. I used to think therapy was just for people who have experienced major trauma, but therapy can help you be at your best no matter what you're going through. So whether it's to learn new positive coping skills, set more realistic boundaries, or just show up as a better version of yourself, BetterHelp is here to help. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can help you get there and BetterHelp can help you. Visit BetterHelp.com slash weaning today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash weaning and get 10% off your first month. And so while they are miraculous and brilliant, they're also like not at all fully developed. (laughs) And since we know adults, so if the prefrontal cortex, which houses your capacity to self-regulate is not fully developed till between 18 and 27 years. And there are some studies now that are pushing it even later. And we know plenty of adults for whom self-regulation is difficult. Then when you think about it that way, it makes so much sense that a baby who's struggling, they don't know what to do. So they just lose it. So it may be that they just don't like the color of the food or the texture of the food, or they just don't want to be confined in a chair right then, or there's a strange sound. Like you don't necessarily have the right, like the understanding of what they need until you pause, regulate yourself and observe what's going on for them and what might be happening in their reaction right now. And the only way to do that is to, and of course, caveat, if they're in danger, you don't, if they're in overt distress. Okay. Actively choking, we intervene. But if they're actively choking, you intervene. You don't pause to see what's going on. You pause to self regulate. And you make a very good point. Is oftentimes we're so reactionary. The parents will be like, So I think she doesn't like green. So I decided to stop doing broccoli because I'm only going right. to do pumpkin. But then I feel like she is texture averse to, and I'm like, Your baby's six months old and doesn't know how to eat. Like our reactions need to be like, Let's acknowledge that babies need a really long runway here to get this skill set down. Both from the cognitive standpoint, but also just from the physiological standpoint of learning how to use those motor skills. You've just freaking learned how to sit up. Now you're trying to sit and suck and swallow and breathe. And, and your mom's freaking out about the green broccoli versus the texture that they think you're averse to. Like it is a lot for parrots. It's a lot. And I think that that's the key is the reason why co-regulation is such an important thing to keep in mind is that when you get in your distress of my baby's going to like, they're not eating this. Like, no, but we we kind, kind of facetious, but parents literally ask me that every day. Like I have terrible eating habits and I don't want to project this onto my child. And so now I'm freaking out. It's like a lot of times it's the parent. And I love that you're always reminding us like, it's not just the baby's behavior that we're reacting to. Like, how are we reacting to yeah. the baby's reaction? The baby eventually will react to that. Like it's this codependent loop. It really is. And so the best thing we can do for our kids, whether it's during feeding or sleep or anything is like first attend to our own self-regulation and what this is doing for us. So you're absolutely right. If your six-month-old is rejecting something and freaking out, and in your mind, you have not come to terms with 
eating is going to unfold as it's going to unfold. You're going to support as best you can with a positive environment. You're going to give a range of foods. You're going to do whatever it is that you set out to do. And I'm sure there are many episodes on your podcast where people can explore that. And also it's not going to go great every time. And this is And it's not your fault. It's not on you. Like we know this. If you think you can control what goes in a child's body or comes out of their body, you have got to come to terms with that not being true. Like in no universe, you cannot. You also can't control how somebody feels. They will, You can only control that they won't tell you how they feel if you try to control how they feel. But you're not controlling how someone feels, what goes in their body, what comes out of their body, full stop, in no universe. The only slight control is that you buy the groceries and you put the options on the table, but you're not... Beyond that, there's absolutely no control. So the minute that we can get to a place of acceptance of that lack of control, which again, doesn't mean that you're not motivated to and inspired to choose a menu that's going to be supportive, to provide the choices that will hopefully promote good eating habits. But like, that's it. Then you have to let go and figure out like, why is this triggering me so much? And I know trigger is so overused, but what is it about my baby's reaction that is freaking me out so much. Is it, I don't like seeing my baby in distress? Is it as simple as that? Very natural. Like we're supposed to make sure that our babies do not seem distressed. That's like what we, our instincts are like, oh my God, there's something going on. It makes sense that it would freak you out. Reminding yourself, are they in danger? No. Okay. So they're not in imminent danger. Can I handle their big feeling? Because if I can't, I've got to deal with that. Like we need as a gift to our kids, to be able to put in their whole system for the rest of their lives, like this person that I count on as my anchor in life can handle my feelings and they might sometimes be hideous. And that's not too scary. Like it's like talking with a friend. You don't open up to your friends who start crying when you tell them a story and can't handle And they're like, I can't hear this, you know, because it's too awful. You go to the ones who are like, I've got you. I can handle it. Tell me what's going on for you. I'm not going to make this about me and how I feel. And so if you remind yourself of that, it feels like easier, I think, to handle your kids' big feelings and your baby's big feelings because you you can think of it like, oh, it's a gift. I'm not, you're not neglecting them. You're not saying like, go figure out how to stop crying and then we're going to feed you. You're just saying, I've got you. My nervous system, I'm breathing. Like I can take three deep breaths. There's time for that. And my nervous system will help your nervous system regulate. Not maybe today, but it's going to take a while but that will be part of the interaction. And it's just physics. Like it really does work. It's just define how work, you know, like what that means. It's not going to work today. And I think part of this is feeding like all things. It's a slow game. And And your baby doesn't magically learn overnight how to eat. I teach a hundred first foods program. We teach babies to eat a hundred different foods before they turn one, but they don't wake up on their six month birthday. And they're like, here's a hundred foods. But also they don't wake up on their 12 month birthday and magically know how to do that. If you haven't spent that weaning period practicing and giving them space to mess up and make a mess and have that full sensory experience of learning how to eat. And I think too often we live in this just like immediate gratification society. I mean, you and I were talking about TikTok before we came on. It was like, dude, I can't keep someone's attention for longer than five seconds. But like, sometimes that trickles down into parenting. Like, oh my gosh, I did not eat this sardine and I gave him 17 seconds to do it. It's like, right. And that's the thing is like, you're as a parent, so pressured to feel like you've got to get this done. And it's otherwise, are you telling yourself a story of like what's happening in their future? Because I didn't get this done for them. And that doesn't help your kids because there's now pressure on, on the feeding 
And we all know what it feels like when somebody's like hanging over you with the weight of the world for like, if you taste something like, think about again, if you think about an adult and they're fully developed, hopefully, and somebody's like, I just, I worked all day on this meal and I can't wait for you to try it. And you just stand over and watch them. They're going to be like, oh my God, hopefully it's delicious. But what if it's a new taste? I know, but then you add like the other layer of grandparents or mother-in-laws and parents are like, oh my gosh, I'm dealing with pressure of the baby not wanting it and the pressure of other family members telling me like, that's not how you start solid food. So, that's not how you do it. And it does get to be a lot because you've never done this before. So it's a mutual learning experience between you and your baby. But I always encourage if someone's not there supporting you, you can, if you can get them out of the picture, please do. Totally. I mean, they don't need that. But on the other hand, if you can't get them out of the picture, you don't need to feel compelled to teach them your way. Just Correct. let it go. Like. Yeah. They can have the influence of different styles. If you're the primary style, we have at the hospital a sign that says parents are born here in the in the neonatal unit because we're born as parents at the same time as our kids are born. We don't, it's not like we've been around. If you have a six-month-old, you've been a parent for six months. This is new stuff. This is hard. So, you know, you have to build in space to mess up and it's totally fine. You mentioned kind of overused terms, and I think one that gets used a ton in parenting kind of makes my skin crawl a little bit is the use of the word anxiety, which can be a real true diagnosis, but yet it gets ascribed to everything, especially in feeding. I feel like so much of our content is just talking to parents' anxieties, but the reality is this generation is open about talking about the things that they're scared about. They're not into pretending like they know everything. And we have parents every day who are like, Katie, this makes me nervous introducing foods, doing the allergenic foods. I get anxious when my baby gags on foods. And so for the parents who are anxious and nervous, do you have any suggestions for practices or tips to avoid during mealtimes that could inadvertently stress your baby out? Like, yes, I know we should all be talking positive. That's really hard for some of us to do. Like, what should we not be doing that you know would stress your baby out? We are wired to hunt for the negative. That's how we survive. And that is where anxiety is a good thing, right? Like if, if we lived in the jungle and we're staring at the rainbow, we're going to get eaten by a tiger. Anxiety is a good thing because you're vigilant. You're like, I'm not going to stare at the rainbow and appreciate the rainbow. <laughs> I'm going to protect my baby and make sure, you know, they don't need a poisonous berry or they don't have, you know, a tiger chomp them. So it's not a bad thing. It's just if nobody's in imminent danger, you don't need to be so vigilant. And so one practice to keep in mind is say to yourself something that just resonates with you. Like I do this and I still do this to this day. I'm not being chased by a bear. Nobody's being chased by a bear. And in that moment of just saying that, it reminds your whole system to say like, this is not a fight, flight, or freeze moment. This is just like a moment. And when you remind yourself, I'm totally safe and you can use some levity. Like I, you know, I think some people might gag at the thought of being like, I am safe. My child is safe. I am okay. We can do this. Okay. I like, I am not being chased by a bear. I'm going to start using that. But I'm not being chased by a bear. And you can, you can remind yourself of that so that you can then figure out how to move forward without the heaviness of the anxiety because you've lightened it. You said, Hey, you know, another way to think about it is figure out the passcode to your internal alarm system. So I live in California. I got an alarm for the first time ever because I didn't. I lived in New York City in an apartment, and only to people in New York does New York feel safer. But I feel much safer. Like, what are you getting at? You moved to a safer part of the country (laughs) now. But in my mind, I was like, ah, like there aren't people everywhere, and I can't like just scream. And my neighbor will say, like, are you okay? And so I got a an alarm system, 
And when I walked in the house, I had this realization that there's this beep for like however many seconds. And then if you haven't punched in the passcode, the alarm goes off and the security comes and things feel pretty intense. But if you know your passcode, when you get a warning, like, uh uh-oh, I'm going to freak out, you just punch in your passcode and you regulate again. And so if you can figure out what your passcode is, for most humans on this planet, breathing is your passcode because you cannot have a stress response while breathing because it's just like in conflict. So if you can say, I'm not being chased by a bear, my baby's not being chased by a bear and just take three breaths, you have your passcode and then you can go along with your day and not, you know, and the broccoli and whatever it is. And it just is not as that the anxiety is just alleviated. And then remember, anxiety is not all bad. So you also don't have to freak out. There's like a new movement of panic over the panic. It's a moment where you're just freaking out. It'll pass. And then your child will still go on to have a happy life. And Aliza, I can really see the passcode to your internal alarm code analogy working in feeding. Because one of the things that is the biggest pain point for parents with the baby-led approach or whenever you transition to solid foods is the gagging on food. And from a developmental standpoint, we teach parents, you know, gagging is a good thing. It is a natural and necessary part of the learning how to eat process. It's remarkably different from choking. Yes, educate yourself about choking. Have CPR skills down so that in the event of a choking incident, you would know what to do. But the vast majority of the time, what's happening is gagging. And if you can recognize that and repeat to yourself, gagging is a good thing. We teach parents to sit on their hands because we don't intervene in a baby's gag. If you intervene in a gag and you startle the baby and they suck in air because they're scared, it could cause a harmless gag to turn into a harmful choke. And so having that mantra, which is so for some people, it is I am strong, I am safe. But for other parents, it is gagging is a good thing. Maybe for some, it is my baby is not being chased by a bear. But I love that internal reset and the way we react so often sets the stage for them what the baby will do next or how they react. Right. Because <laughs> essentially you're, they're getting wired in these mealtime experiences for how to associate mealtime and joy and comfort and or stress and whatever. And I say that with the understanding that it's, an, you know, multiple experiences, repeat experiences, you have many opportunities to have meals per day. So it's not like you're going to get them all perfectly. And then if you don't, your kid's going to associate mealtime with negative experiences and it's all a mess. But just on balance, do you feel like more times than not, it's a peaceful experience? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You have such a deep background in parenting and you've seen a lot in your experiences, both as a parent and as a professional, as an educator, which I think is why I know that your podcast really resonates with me because I'm like, I have never done this next step in parenting. Let me hear from someone who has. So it's very comforting. And I'm curious, the theory I always struggle with, so this is partially self-serving, is like the positive language piece. Like it does not just come naturally to me to be like, oh my gosh, how wonderful when like the baby's freaking dropping all the food that I just made on the floor. I know they're not doing it to be because they're quote unquote bad, but like tips on positive language. Because for a lot of us, I have to practice and I have lots of parents who say the same thing because the positive language stuff does not come naturally. What verbiage should we be sharing if possible to speak to parents of six to 12 month old babies when that baby's 
you know, and I, again, I know a 10 month old baby dropping food is having a much different experience than a six month old dropping food. But if you want to just generalize in late infancy for okay. positive language. So yeah, I mean, take with a grain of salt, everything that I say or anybody else about positive language, because yeah, if it's not your natural thing, then it's annoying. And I totally understand that. Like I recognize that some of the scripts that folks in my field and probably in your field and, you know, anybody who's looking for any of this, some of it's kind of like, oh, you're so annoying. Yeah, but there's something for everyone. That's the beauty of the world, right? I'm not everyone's cup of tea, but for some parents, you know, I think, <laughs> hey, you might think this annoying language is annoying. I'm like, no, that's actually genius. I'm going to use that. It might that. be helpful. So one way to look at it at is, and part of this really matters that you, you know, if you can start at six months, great. If you start at 10 months, totally great too. But you, the longer you have practice where your baby's not quite understanding the language, they just get your vibe. I've been in California too long that I said that, but that if you can do what's called a positive opposite, you tell your child what to do instead of what not to do. It trains your language to be more positive. So it's like, let's say in your brain, you're, you want to say, don't throw your food on the floor. Of course you want to say that. That's a natural thing to want to say. So what you train your brain to do is what's the opposite that what's the positive opposite of that? It's please keep your food on the table or in your mouth. And is a six month old, like what six month old understands what's going on? It's not that it's just that you're practicing language, a 10 month old. Absolutely. And you know, you use your hands and gesture to make sense of your words because that's going to matter until they're completely using language fluently, but you really just want to practice positive opposites. You can do that. I recommend doing that with adults, with kids, just in your own brain, because it just helps you get fluent in this language of, of approaching babies and thinking about what do I want them to do? And the reason you want to think about what do I want them to do is because if you just said, don't throw your food on the floor, then what if they throw it on the wall? Yeah. They Smash it in their hair. I mean, yes. Right. That analogy works so well in feeding too, because my idea is to say like, don't throw your food on the floor. It's like, well, what do you want the baby to do? Food is for staying on the plate. We eventually eat food and put it in our mouth. I love that you're exploring the food. And it does feel kind of fake at first, but I think you get a way of doing it. Although my kids are older, my quadruplets are in kindergarten. They totally realize when I'm like, you're fake smiling now, what you're saying doesn't match what's coming out of your mouth. And like, oh shoot, maybe I didn't start this like, positive opposite stuff early enough because now they know I'm lying. Like, so <laughs> fair warning, start as early as you can. Absolutely. Okay. All right. In my approach to baby led weaning, we really help parents back away from their concern, which is inherent about how much their baby is eating, right? There's this pressure of, oh my gosh, they're not eating enough. They're not getting enough iron. They're not getting enough calories. We teach them to build in space and time for the baby to practice learning how to eat. So I'm curious if you could share a little bit about the learning process that babies, especially the early years, six and seven months are going through. Like if parents feeling stressed, oh my gosh, they're not getting 11 milligrams of iron because they don't know how to eat yet. Like developmentally, what should parents be aware of so they don't get stressed when their baby is taking this deliberate, slow approach to starting solid foods that feels like maybe they're not getting enough? First of all, the first couple of months are not about the nutrients. See, you know that with a PhD and a background in psychology, I can't tell you how many registered dietitians are like, so I tried to calculate how many milligrams of iron from my breast milk the baby was getting. And then I like crossed multiplied that by the amount of iron in the meat they were dropping on the floor. I'm like, that's not what it's about. It's like, not what it's about. It's kind of no offense, but it's sad that like child development people sometimes get it more about the nourishing the baby's body than the like clinical nutrition people. And I'm speaking like about my own profession. I think it's the fields are so siloed, but they're serving the same people. And so if everybody did more, I have gotten so much more out of working in a hospital where there are different experts in 
multiple fields. And when we have conversations, I'm like something that I say that I think is super obvious. They're like, what? And vice versa. And I'm just like, you can't, whatever you're explaining to me is not English to me. So can you back up for a second? And they're like, what do you mean? That's something we learned day one. So I think part of it is just having conversations like this with people in fields that are siloed that really shouldn't be siloed. But also I think developmental psychology is an umbrella field for for social, emotional, and cognitive development. And so we do have a bigger picture approach to everything because we understand development that way. So yes, the one of the best ways to feel mellow about those first couple of months of solids is that it's not relevant nutrition-wise, it's relevant experience-wise. And so you just want to have whatever experience is going to make this something you want to keep doing. Yeah, because I hate to break it to you, you have to feed this small person for at least the next 17 and a half years of your life. So like, honestly, and the parents are like, oh, you know what? It kind of makes sense. I'm going to do the work now to help them build a foundation for a healthful relationship with food that as adults, like, again, this is a totally different conversation, but a lot of us would readily admit we don't have, and parents do feel that they don't want to replicate that stuff. In I have their horrible children. habits. Yeah. I horrible. But um, yet you're responsible like for feeding a 15 and a 12 year old every single day. I mean, I know they are making their own food choices, <laughs> but at the end of the day, like you're yeah. still in charge. It would say, I just want you to know that on mother's day, I got a card that was like, mom, you're our, and then it's like a list of all the things that moms are. And one of the things was best chef. And then they crossed that out. And Last year on Mother's Day, they gave me a rock that said like mothers are, and it was like number one, you know, again, list of a bunch of traits, one of them being cook and they crossed it out. So my kids know I have destroyed that part, you know, like they caught on quickly that I was not the chef of the house and I wasn't raised like that. Like my mom was working and a single mom and she gave me TV dinners and just terrible to tell about it, Elisa. I lived to tell. I did. But I mean, I would never give that to my kid. Like I was like, mom, maybe you've also been in LA for too long. If you're like, because I feel like sometimes I'm like, heck yeah, whatever I can find, I would give it to my kids. But but other parents would be like, why? What's wrong with that? It's like, no, we're not judging the food choices that you're making. But we do have to acknowledge from a child development standpoint that the practices that a baby has experience and exposure to with those first bites, they do matter. Are they everything? Is it irreversible? No, but we can't say they don't matter. Like we don't feed six month olds flaming hot Cheetos and regular Dr. Pepper. Right. For right. a freaking reason. Right. Like, right. I couple. probably was, but again, <laughs> and I did live to tell the tale, but I would say that one of the things that we just have to keep reminding ourselves is that we can't cling to micro moments and mealtimes are like each bite when we're invested in that micro moment we're actually counterproductive because our kids are feeling that the weight of that, whether they're six months or 10 months, and it's unnecessary because we're trying to wire these habits, but not at the expense of everybody's mental health. Oh, we can't cling to micro moments. I know you don't intend to speak in sound bites, but this is amazing. (laughs) Meals are micro moments. And we get, we put so much pressure on ourselves about them. Now, over time, cumulatively, yeah, they do matter. But if over you guys, time, if you have a bad meal or a bad day or you drive through, I'm not saying to buy your baby drive through because people will take that clip and say, that dietitian said to take your baby to McDonald's. I'm not saying that. Is it the end of the world if you don't have a perfect organic meal with three well-balanced food groups? Like, no, it's a micro moment. Don't cling to the micro moments. Aliza, thank you so much for sharing your time and your talents, your expertise with us. Tell us where can our audience go to learn more about you and your work and to support your business? 
Thank you. Well, you can listen to Raising Good Humans podcast, or I try to give summaries on Instagram, which is Raising Good Humans podcast. She, she does her own Instagram. It's amazing. <laughs> I'm going to link to all your stuff in the show notes, but I was like, also get some help with your Instagram. I know. I it's fabulous. That. I don't know how you do it all though. And that you can go on to mountsinaiparentingcenter.org. We have um, a lot of resources online and I have a newsletter, drlisa.bulletin.com. And I think those are the best ways to reach me. There's an email, you know, for people who want to reach me via email. There's an, it's, I think you can click on Instagram. I'm not really fast with it, but I, I get them. Is eventually. your email newsletter a paid subscription? I can never remember who I'm paying for and who I'm not. I love yours. Thank you. Okay, so I have a free subscription. And then there's a premium subscription that's $4.99 a month. And that's more because it includes like, like parenting Zoom calls and stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't understand where you get all the time. I need to have a separate time management. Well, I mean, I'm not entirely sure that I do manage my time properly, but I have teenagers who close their door a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and dress themselves and go to the bathroom by and themselves. It's saving themselves. you a little yeah. bit of time there. I'm I not saying doing... you're cheating, but... <laughs> no, it's giving me so much more time. Like, I just want to say this because these the, the, your audience has young babies. I was not doing this when I had young babies. I was doing one thing. But you were also studying with young babies. And that is like, to yes. me, the hardest thing, like to use your brain when you have children. I'm sorry, I can't do it. You were talking about like, I was talking with a fellow when I was pregnant. I was like, I was like eating chips and listening to podcasts when I was pregnant, just trying not to throw up. <laughs> but I do. I really, really appreciate your time and sharing with our audience. And I love what you were saying about, you know, the different professions not needing to be siloed. A child learning how to eat is not strictly a nutrition or an occupational therapy or a speech language pathologist or a developmental psychologist. Like there are all of these issues at play and it doesn't hurt to learn from the different areas what our babies are going through at the different ages and stages. So thank you so much for this conversation. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. And I'll have to have you on when we do baby led weaning. I would love to come and talk about baby led weaning. I hope you guys enjoyed that interview. I love Dr. Pressman. I've always loved her podcast, but she's so lovely to speak to in person and just a real life person because I've spoken to a lot of developmental psychologists over the years. And I just think I love this like approach now. They're just more real kind of, I feel like, and less scary from the psychology side. So I really enjoy connecting with her both on a professional level, but also as a fellow mom and someone kind of working in the same space. It's funny how there's a lot of overlapping issues or you know situations that we see in both of our lines of work. And I love what she was saying about the professions not needing to be siloed when it comes to addressing, you know, really big milestone related things like transitioning to solid food. So I'm going to link to all of the particulars that Dr. Pressman was mentioning, as well as her podcast, which again is Raising Good Humans with Elisa Pressman. That'll be on the show notes page for this episode, which you can find at blwpodcast.com forward slash 234. Thanks so much for listening.